The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Concluding chapter of Job, chapter 42. Remember, it follows a revelation from God. How God gave this revelation, we're not able to say, but he certainly made vivid to Job's mind, if not in audible voice. We don't know that it was an audible voice, but in images, in pictures, revealed to the man in a way that he was quite sure it was God speaking and revealing. God showed his greatness in the natural creation both the inanimate creation and the animate creation. In so many words saying, Job, if I command all this, if I understand all this, and you don't, what does that say? And Job certainly stood back and was greatly humbled. And so we hear him say now at Job 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, which he had prayed for his friends, or when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima. 
and of the second, the name of the second, Kezia, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among the brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. And this is not quite the last thing the Bible has to say about Job. One more very brief passage, the book of James in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. For behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And this is God's word. I notice that in that short passage of James, there is a tribute to Job. He is called steadfast, and that's a good thing. And yet, steadfastness by a human being is not the last word of praise, if you would notice what James said. The last word about this great book we have studied is, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job's final words spoken here at the beginning of chapter 42 are words of repentance. Now that does not mean that Job finally got it, what the three men were trying to say to him, and he, as we say, fessed up to specific sin that God was punishing him for, as the friends had hammered him repeatedly to do. He didn't need to do that, remember. For it was not his sin that he was being punished for, He did confess some attitudes and some impatience, certainly some lack of humility that was expressed by him as he responded to what was happening through the book. Of those things, he did repent. It's a strange irony to see that when a believer has been wrestling a long time and saying, I don't know what God's doing here, and I'm confused, and I can't figure out what the Lord's up to, when he finally stops kind of arguing with God and comes and surrenders himself, it's funny that you begin to at least understand a little what it is you were arguing with or so troubled by. At least you understand it as far as you ever will on this earth. We begin to glimpse in Job at the end a a sense of God's knowledge that is beyond intellectual knowledge. It may be that same thing that Ephesians 3.19 calls knowing God's love that surpasses knowledge, not just an intellectual matter. We saw last time that the cause of Job's great inward change was rather simple, if you want to say it in a few words, what was happening in, in chapters 38 to 41. God got bigger, or more technically said, God was revealed in his supremacy and his magnificence and his huge power and mercy and all of his attributes in a way that Job had not remembered or glimpsed at least before. 
It wasn't a matter of God actually getting bigger, but Job seeing God as big as he always was. It's been suggested that one way we could picture the response of Job as he expresses himself in those first six verses of chapter 42 is echoed in Psalm 131, a very small psalm. There we read these words, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I no longer concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But now I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. What a beautiful picture the psalmist draws there. You've all seen a young baby on its mother's breast, quiet, perhaps asleep, or at least calmed from crying because he knows it's in the place of greatest security. The calm of an infant with its mother is the calm of Job now in the hands of God. He's not fracked and thrashing around and saying, I've got to get this, I've got to understand this, why won't God tell me this? He's calmed like an infant at its mother's breast. It didn't matter whether God was going to end his suffering or not. Notice that the repentance came before the restoration came. Job wasn't calm and steadfast because God gave him twice as much, and he said, oh, good, I've got everything I wanted, so now I'll be content in God. No, the multiplication of his goods and all of those things came after he had repented before God. So in the end, I have to say the book of Job is a book about worship. It's really about how to worship God. In a sin-wracked world where things don't go according to plan, where we don't quite figure out what's happening or why, where we have to lay down our agonized questions at the feet of God because we're acknowledging that we are creatures of the moment while he is the sovereign, eternal creator God over all things. We, like Job, have to come and say, God, you suddenly got much bigger than I ever knew you were. Even while our God allows us to experience sufferings that are part of just existing in this broken, sin-cursed humanity, not necessarily tied directly to our own faults, he is bringing his believing children through it. And he's doing it by his compassion and his mercy. I'm thankful that there's more to say in this 42nd chapter than just Job lived happily ever after. Amen. There's a lot more here than that. I want to give you a longer first point and then a very short second point and then a list of a half dozen conclusions that I think we can draw from the book of Job overall. First of all, in verses 7 to 9 here, we did look some at the first six verses last time. In verses 7 to 9, look at what's happening there. We see how Job demonstrated God's grace in the cross. There have been so many chapters of weary discussion from these three so-called comforters or so-called friends of Job 
that you might have wondered in listening to them, because some of the things they had to say were very eloquent and sounded quite good, you might have thought, well, who was right in this argument, this discussion? Were they ever right and Job wrong? Well, at least overall, we now see the decisive answer. As the Spirit of the Lord reveals himself to the consciences of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. Again, how does God reveal these things? How does God convict someone? Is it a deep impression made upon them or what? Again, did they hear an audible voice? We're not told they did. But God is able to reveal himself. And so these three men hear this and and have it impressed upon them so that they believe it's from God. As the Lord says, this message, my anger burns against you for you have not spoken what is right. And again, if we could boil down the core of all that they've been saying in a tremendous truckload of verbiage in this book, they were saying in so many words, Job, we know God only brings this kind of suffering in punishment for evil or misdeeds in a life. No righteous person would ever be allowed by the Lord to suffer like this. So Job, how dare you say you're a just man? Will you please just Get off your high horse and confess, and all will be well with you. That's been their message. And God now is essentially saying, you have spoken what is not right. As a pastor, many times over the years I have been a pastor in congregations, I have known of people in my flock I minister to who would say to me that they'd been told by some other alleged Christian that their serious illness would be cured immediately if only they made a right kind of confession to God. Or perhaps if they somehow claimed the right healing that they haven't asked for in the right kind of faith. And what that is is always a little nebulous. But I've seen people deeply hurt by that kind of naive message given to them by what we sometimes call the health and wealth crowd. Those who think that God only intends good all the time for his disciples, for his faithful people. And if you're experiencing something less, there's something wrong with you. And folks will come, and I don't think they mean to be cruel, but they are cruel because of their mistaken theology. And they leave people wallowing in guilt, saying, what am I doing wrong that I'm suffering this way? Why is this thing on me? How can I somehow filter out the bad things from my faith and get the right kind of faith to claim a healing? Because my Christian friend tells me I shouldn't have this disability, this long-term illness, this cancer. Well, I remind you once more because it's a a passage of the New Testament that belongs alongside Job. John 9-2 tells us there were friends of Job among the disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a very familiar passage. You recall there, you could look it up if you want. John 9-2, Jesus was walking along with his disciples. This is fairly early in the ministry. And they passed a man born blind from birth, and the disciples had a question. Here was a rabbi that had the answers. Rabbi, who sinned here? You get it? Who sinned here that this man was born blind? Was it him? Did he sin in the womb? 
because he was born blind? Or was it his parents? And Jesus gave the answer that surprised everybody. Neither one. This is not something you need to lay at the doorstep of anyone's particular sin. He said, this happened as an occasion for the glory of God to be seen. We could say the exact same thing of what happened to Job. But disciples of Jesus and the friends of Job and many alleged Christians in our days have something bred into our bones, and it's that, you know, good equals blessing, bad equals cursing and suffering. And so if you're having blessing, you must be good. If you're having suffering, you must be bad. Well, there certainly is a generalization that can be understood in the Scripture that that God rewards the blessed individual who walks with him, who seeks after him, who calls upon his name, who obeys his laws, who worships him in a true way, that there are many good things that will be in that life. The Scripture says that kind of thing over and over. And likewise, it says those who disobey my law, those who ignore me, those who spit in my eye, there will be cursings and suffering for them. But that is a broad and general principle which we don't seem to always understand, is not seen every time, hour by hour, day by day, point for point, in our lives. There are times when the godly person is suffering. And there certainly are times when the ungodly person appears to never suffer and be doing great. And that's where we wrestle, isn't it? It's the short-term issue that troubles us. We don't seem to understand why terrible things may happen that are not caused by us. An aggressive cancer coming out of nowhere. A terrorist attack. You're the person in the path of some madman with his AK-47 raking a crowd. That didn't have to do with you. You're in the path of a tornado or a drunk driver or go on and on and on. It isn't necessarily about you. It isn't necessarily punishment for you. God's finest exemplary saints will suffer, as Job clearly points out. But here came his friends with their tidy, simplistic, theological grid, and they just laid down the grid and said, okay, Job, here it is. We all know the grid. We all know that you must fit in it. Won't you just admit that, and all will be well once you acknowledge They were talking about fitting a grid of rules, not a living relationship with God. Their idea of worship was a little bit like playing a game of chess, you know. No, you can't move your bishop over there. Uh, No, your pawn can't advance that way. You've got to play by the rules, and these are the rules. Job came with a sense of awe at God. They came with a sense of respect for the rules, not reverence, rules. And they wanted to impose their system on Job and everybody else. Well, if there was any doubt at all what the Lord thought of that, here it is answered in Job 42.7 and following. For the Lord instructed these friends to come with a rather lavish burnt offering of seven bulls and seven rams. And guess what they were to do with it? By the way, there was no temple at this time. These people weren't even Jews. They weren't Israelites. This was even before Israel was constituted as a nation, and they lived in a different area anyway, the land of Uz. 
but the basic patterns and ideas of sacrifice were part of their worship. And the Lord said, bring the bulls, bring the rams as a blood offering. And guess what? Job is the priest and the mediator to whom you are to present these things, and he will receive the sacrifice, and he will pray for you, and only when he does will I forgive you. Wow. What a role reversal for those who thought their rule book always applied everywhere at all times. What do you see here? You see how the Lord is urging us to grasp the inadequacy of a religion simply based on human wisdom and poetry and works. Instead of religion, God said, you need a mediator. And Job is going to be your mediator when he comes with your blood offering and prays for you and stands between my justice and you. Do you remember something, how Job prayed back in chapter 9, verse 33? I brought it out at the time. He was longing himself for a mediator. Remember that? He said, oh, that I could find somebody who would put one hand on me and one hand on God and bring us together. What an irony. Did Job ever think that he would be God's appointed mediator, in a human way at least, for these unrighteous friends? Every commentator I know of looks on this passage and says, here's God introducing in the Old Testament with threads of things that are going to be culminated in a much greater way later on, telling us what? We need a mediator to be right with God. We need a blood atonement to be right with God. And who would ever guess that lowly Job, who couldn't figure things out when they were happening, would serve here as a living prophetic picture. In in biblical study, we call him a type. He's a type of Christ. In other words, a human advance indicator, or like a billboard alongside the road, indicating what Christ would be later on. Job could never, ever, ever have imagined that God was going to use him in a way that would typify the once-for-all mediator for humanity, Jesus Christ, who would come with a once-for-all, absolutely adequate blood atonement for all persons, that he would stand between our sin and God's holiness, and he would ever live to make intercession for us. Wow, God's teaching us here about nothing less than the cross. I'm not imposing the cross on this passage. It's here, folks. Job foreshadowed our great high priest as the perfect sufferer whose suffering somehow made all the tangled threads come together and make sense. You know, there's another very very bold, typical statement of prophecy of Christ and his cross in Isaiah 53, 11. There it says, out of the anguish of his soul, that's the suffering service, servant, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Job was an Old Testament signpost for the cross of Jesus Christ, and that's a wonderful thing. Now I have a second short point, and then we go to some wrap-up lessons here. 
But in verses 10 to 16, the book concludes by showing us how Job received God's grace in his remaining life. Now, there are actually people who kind of sneer at the book of Job. Some of the liberal commentators say, oh, this is sort of contrived, this happily ever after sugar-coated ending. You would think, uh, I don't know what they want. They want uh, the book to end in more suspense or something or not not quite so well resolved as the book of Job is. And so they say, well, it seems like we've got an artificial ending here, happily ever after. Well, there's definitely more than that here. I would have you notice how everything is restored and even increased over what it was before. Notice even the detail of Job's lifespan of 140 years. Most commentators will point out the fact that remind you of the psalm-wise uh, saying that our ordinary life is three score years and ten, seventy, right? What's twice seventy? A hundred and forty. Job was given twice the normal lifespan. At this time, they were not living to be nine hundred years old or so, as we saw in the very early time of the oldest patriarchs. But Job was given this ancient Lifespan, 140 years, and his, he got his family back. He got all the animals back. And although he didn't get more children in the second batch, by the way, we don't know whether this was the same wife or what, but she must have been tired out by the end of the thing. Ten, <laughs> ten more children. But the point being made that his daughters were the most beautiful women in the entire land and were highly respected and highly regarded and even had an inheritance portion in the estate, which usually was not given to a woman in those days. Well, it's important not to see that you not see this return of riches as something God owed Job. Wouldn't it be easy to think, oh, well, God put this guy through a really rough time, so he definitely owed him. Pay back everything and more besides. It was his just desserts, right? God owed Job nothing. Not one dollar, not one camel, not one sheep. This grand reversal was not a reward for his faithfulness. It was a gift to demonstrate the wonderful grace and abundance of the Lord towards his people that he loves. It was a poured out unmerited blessing to indicate that this is what God does for believers, if not in this world, and it's not always seen in this world for sure, but if not in this world, certainly in the world to come. The Christian life involves hardship, warfare with evil, patient prayer, humiliation, difficulty, exasperation, but it also involves the sure hope of abundant, gracious, merciful blessing from God, if not in this life, certainly in the life to come at the end of time. The fruits of joy and security, beauty, prosperity, if we don't have these things here in this life, we will have them from our God in the end of all things, when we see him face to face. God didn't create people of faith with the final intention to curse us. He created us in order to bless us. 
All right, is it possible in a few more minutes to summarize the life conclusions we can draw from this study of Job? This is pretty intimidating to do, so I'm just going to give you some suggestions. Sure that I could, instead of giving you simply five, I could easily give you 10 or 15 lessons. Lesson one, Job teaches us to stop thrashing ourselves with guilt about how or whether we're being punished by God if we are suffering. If you are suffering for your own weak, sinful, disobedient ways, it's quite likely if you have a conscience that's half alive at all, you will know that. And if you've examined your conscience and you can't see the equation, then it probably isn't God's punishment. Lesson two. Put away the silly arrogance of ever assuming that you have the mind of God about issues of eternal justice. Oh, how often we are saying things like, this just isn't fair. Who told you that you knew what fair is? Isn't that what God, you could say, beat in, I guess, in a kind way into the mind of Job? Job, what do you know anyway? Who gave you the mind of the Creator to know what final justice or eternal plans really ought to look like? We look at that revelation of God in chapters 38 to 41, and gently but very firmly, God is ridiculing the idea that our wisdom is on a level plane with His. Will we get that? Lesson three. Sometimes we, people of faith, have to endure the darkest hours of pain to learn the richest lessons and promises of God. I remember how struck I was very early, first year of my ministry. The movie came out, the Christian film that some of you will remember if you go back 40 years in conscious memory, the Christian film The Hiding Place. I still think it's almost the finest Christian message movie ever made. And as two Dutch sisters were in the Ravensbrück prison camp of the Nazis, suffering horrible things, they said in so many words, what is God doing? And one of them, Betsy Ten Boom, said to her sister, don't you see, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. He takes us into the pit sometimes to let us discover him there. And it's in the pit that we discover the kinds of things that Job never would have learned otherwise, like, although he slay me, yet will I trust him. It was in the pit that God gave him a prophecy that I'm sure Job didn't completely comprehend himself when he spoke it. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end... I will see him standing on the earth. I myself will see him. He didn't fully understand what he was even saying, but it was something he discovered by revelation, by entering the pit of suffering. We have to endure the darkest hours to get the richest lessons. Lesson four. Suffering actually drives God's people to passionately seek after him as nothing else can do. It separates the true Christian from the mere nominal, lukewarm soul who confronts a little bit of difficulty and and immediately rises up on his hackles and says, I can't believe in a God who would do that, and boom, he's out of here. 
And the rest of his life, he goes through whining that pitiful little song as if he somehow found the secret to God's non-existence. Suffering drives God's true people to passionately seek the living God, not a moral system, not a bunch of rules for playing chess, but the heart longing, the passionate longing that Job expressed in chapter 23 when he said, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, the living God. That separates a real Christian from a pew sitter. We must expect that the normal Christian life will contain lonely, dark, question mark times of emptiness and unresolved yearning for God. And it will be by struggle and persistent prayer and trust in His Word that we discover on the other side of it God's smile again. And maybe we'll be without that smile for a period of time. Suffering actually drives God's people to seek Him. Lesson four. Never draw permanent conclusions about God from temporary hardships or even some pain that lasts a whole lifetime. I watched a person, I'm not going to get very specific, but a person in this congregation who has had a lifetime handicap of struggle and difficulty. And I watched that person uh, just a Sunday or two ago, and I thought to myself, Michael, would you be holding on to God and singing his praises if you had to face every day and every hour with the handicap that individual has to struggle with? And I had to say, I wonder. But I say from Job, never draw permanent conclusions about God from temporary hardships, and temporary can even mean a lifetime. It can even mean 10 or 20 or 40 years. None of us knows what we will suffer in this world. Maybe you've had a, I've had a relatively suffering-free life. Now, my wife would say, don't say anything or lightning will strike you. But who knows? Who knows? If God struck me down with a, a disease or a handicap or a, some great limitation that was with me the rest of my days, could I shake my fist and say, this isn't fair. Why are you doing this? I'm drawing conclusions from temporary hardships, which are not permanent. And our Savior's promise through so many different verses that could be quoted is that either at our death or at Christ's coming to bring us resurrection bodies and eternal life with himself in a glorified existence, he will turn every wound of this life into worship. He turns wounds into worship, ladies and gentlemen. And there's no material gift or benefit or state of well-being or health that you can say, you know, if you were at your ideal weight, maybe, maybe weight gain is a major problem in your life, as it is for many people. I know what it is to struggle with that. I wish I weighed 40 pounds less. I don't. There are many things we struggle with. But even if we had them, It is not worthy to be compared or even to touch the surface of the greatness of what God is going to give us in resurrection bodies. When we see Him face to face and we live with His people forever in the glory and praise of God and evil is no more. 
able to touch us. Never draw permanent conclusions about God from temporary hardships. Lesson five, the last. All of Job's experience points to and culminates in Jesus Christ. Stop and think a minute. If you think Satan mounted a fierce attack on Job, just think how he went after Jesus. From the moment Jesus was an infant, what happened? Herod's troops went out trying to stamp out his life, tried to kill all the infants at Bethlehem. Jesus was the target. The moment he began his ministry, it says the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness where he contended with Satan for 40 days and Satan tried to conquer the mind of Jesus. He focused, Satan focused his attack on Christ with greater ferocity than anything Job ever faced. And I have marveled all my life over this one verse in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. And I marvel over it still. If I want to meditate on something that, that just draws me to the wonder of Christ, I read Hebrews 5, 8. Although he was a son, yet he, Christ, learned obedience from the things that he suffered. If that was God's pathway for Jesus to pioneer, do you really think that you are somehow going to be granted the free pass? No suffering for you. You're too good a disciple for that. I don't think so. I turn, too, to the words of 1 Peter 2, 21, and following these wonderful words, Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you might follow in his path. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Isn't that what Job did? Isn't that what steadfastness was about? Entrusting yourself to him who you know in the end gives only righteous judgment. And so another verse from Hebrews 12, 5 declares this, My son, my child, my disciple, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. The Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as his son. Let me close quickly with a quote from one of those books you were supposed to read in high school that you probably didn't. One of the greatest novels ever written, Fyodor Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky was a Christian, if you didn't know that. In this story, he wrote about a man called Father Zosima, who's a Russian priest. And Father Zosima was speaking on his deathbed, telling folks about lessons he had learned from the book of Job. Here's what Father Zosima said, just a couple short paragraphs. He said, scoffers will say about Job, how can God give up the most beloved of his saints for Satan to play with him, take his children and herd, smite him with boils, all for what? It's just so God can boast to Satan and say, see how much my saint can suffer for my sake? Father Zosima said, no. What great mysteries of life are revealed in Job as he is raised back to wealth and blessing as he steadfastly trusts. The sorrow and great mystery of human life is transformed into Job's quiet 
tender joy before his Savior. And over all of it, we see divine truth, tender and reconciling and all-forgiving. And then the dying priest said, I also feel that in every day that is left to me, how my earthly life is touched now by a new, infinite, fast-approaching future life, the anticipation of which sets my soul trembling with rapture, my mind glowing with praise, and my heart weeping for joy. God be thanked for teaching us a few things from the book of Job. Father, may we go on learning these lessons. They're not things we just digest and say, okay, I've conquered Job. We take our stand with this man, knowing that we'll still struggle as he did. We will still say, why is this happening? Where's God? What's going on? Did I deserve this? We say those things because we're human. But Father, through it, through the mists and the clouds and the smoke of evil touching your servant, we see a steadfastness, we see a trust that you reward. And so we believe that Christ, who suffered more than any of us and did it for us, will bring us through and give us the reward of grace at his appearing. So we thank you in his name. Amen.